Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Justin, Craig Moffat, Michael Nathanson, their substantial report on this transaction. And we're thrilled to bring you Scott Galloway from New York University and Stern School with thoughts on this. Scott, you and I talked this morning, particularly with Brian Weezer, about cost synergies. Moffat and Nathanson agree you can also dismiss the notion of cost synergies. But where they go before that is this idea of net neutrality that if you vertically integrate, you got to offer everything to everybody outside the company as well, right? Sure, but there might be some ways about that. You might have faster download. You might have enhancements. You might have previews, special special opportunities to, to get Game of Thrones the night before it comes out if you're an AT&T subscriber. I think there's all kinds of ways they can play okay. around the edges. I mean, HBO Now is mm-hmm. working, and the point of really Game well. of Thrones – but it's not a big count. There's not a lot of mass there, is there, versus, say, the huge platform of CNN? Well, I, it depend, I see a lot of people stealing their parents' HBO Go um, passwords and watching it on the yes, subway and train. fair. So I think Game of Thrones has probably got more mass. And if you look at the impact it's having versus kind of people just sort of numb and sort of sleepwalking through their day with CNN on in the background— I think Game of Thrones is, you know, some of the content they have is not only fantastic content, but will continue to have pricing power such that these people can exit this awful ecosystem called advertising. And and, and that's where we went with Scott earlier, David Gurr, this idea of advertising or no ads. Yeah, hearing that, you got to think that's bad news for Verizon, which is pursuing a strategy that is fully focused on ads, right? I generally believe that the advertising ecosystem, I think in America, just like we become numb to mass shootings, we become numb to how bad advertising is. The, the, the constant reload on website pages with this, these banner ads that are irrelevant. Uh, look, at, look at the television ads. If you, read, if, if you think that TV is, at, is targeting you, that means you're in the market for a South Korean car, a light beer, and that you're bipolar and have restless leg syndrome. <laughs> There's absolutely no targeting taking place in TV. We have seen the end of, I think we're at peak advertising, and people are going to opt out using technology to say, I'll pay 50 cents to opt out of advertising. And when was the ball dropped on that? Gosh, that's a, that's an interesting point. I don't know what the, the the fulcrum was, but at the end of the day, what what you have is now the technology will give people the opportunity to opt out and digest the business insider for mm. an entire year for fifty five cents. Do you know how much the New York Times gets for littering your newspaper <laughs> with ads an entire year? They can monetize you to the extent of two dollars and sixty four cents wow. a year. So if they make it easy for you to pay another two dollars and seventy cents for no ads, right. I think people are going to start opting yeah. out. There was a, a note from John Martin, the head of Turner, to his staff. I saw excerpted this morning uh, saying, you know, can't do anything, of course, until the deal goes through. But start thinking about uh, what you could do with 130 million mobile subscribers, 16 million broadband subscribers, and 25 million video subscribers. 
bearing that in mind, what what is the what is available to this company if the deal goes through? What what does change in terms of how they approach the the media space? Well, the idea of just having on demand and live TV on an app where you just you just it's just your finger on it and then boom, it's playing. And we don't quite have that yet. This some of the stuff is pretty cumbersome. It does take some time to figure it out. I, I love HBO, I love Game of Thrones. I have not figured out their pay service mm-hmm. on my iPad. I don't know if you guys have. I just haven't nope. figured it out. Nope. And <laughs> dead on. I, I think there's more of us out there than people would like to admit. Mm-hmm. So the the kind of on demand, easy, not only not only on demand over the top, but one of the bets AT and T is making with their direct. TV now is that they noticed sixty percent of the consumption of video on their network was live yeah. TV. Yeah. I'm seeing the headlines come out. Uh, CNBC in conversation with the head of of AT and T on this right now. It's eerie to me, Scott Galloway, how the headlines are the same as every other merger, and particularly Time Warner AOL from another mm. time and place. I mean, I get the idea. CEOs are supposed to talk their book. Mm-hmm. That's all I see here this morning. How do you translate? the actions of these CEOs as they move forward with this trans- this transaction. Well, w- w- one of these guys is hoping it's a good deal. One of them knows it's a great deal. <laughs> Jeffrey Bucas. Well said. Yeah. Jeffrey Bucas. I, it's like, I don't know if this is the best time to sell uh, a condo in Manhattan or the best time to sell Time Warner, but you know it's a good time. The cable is in structural decline, and they are taking some outstanding cable assets, but nonetheless in structural decline, and selling them. He may be ringing the bell at the high here. I think this is, you know, this is what you want from a CEO and a board if you're a shareholder. Yeah. You want them to time it Al, and sell at the top. I led with my first line. Scott Galloway, thank you so much uh, in New, uh, with New York University. And just thank you again for your important perspective. And we'll get you on Yahoo and the Verizon train wreck. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. I'm David Gura with Tom Keen digging into that $85 billion AT&T Time Warner deal this morning. It's our pleasure to welcome Craig Moffitt to the program. Craig Moffitt of Moffitt Nathanson, who has just published a note, as Tom was mentioning, uh, on the deal. And Craig, let me start with uh, the two C's here, the, the rationale for the deal, content and cost savings. Let's take uh, the latter one first here. When you, when you look at the deal so much as we know of it right now, does the cost savings argument make sense? Hey, morning, David. Morning. Um, what what cost savings exactly? <laughs> I, I, I <laughs> I'm I'm struggling to see um, the logic for any cost savings. I mean, you can shut down an investor relations department and the cost of listing one of the, the stocks on the exchange, but that's about it. There's 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 not any any particular industrial logic to this being cheaper to run because you put them under one umbrella. When you when you look at 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 and T's hunger for content here, how how uh, complementary is this combination? In other words, is, is this a logical fit in that regard? Is AT and T going to get the content at once out of Time Warner? Well, here's the way I would think about it. Um, you know, look, there's a lot of things you could do with vertical integration. Um, you could. A lot of people this morning are talking about the theory, at least, of could you keep HBO or some of the Time Warner properties proprietary to one of the AT&T distribution platforms. That's not going to be allowed. That It's not clear that would economically make sense anyway, but it will clearly be prohibited. So you won't be able to advantage your distribution because you own content. At the same time, net neutrality and, and rules around so-called zero rating or trying to exempt time order content from uh, usage caps and that sort of thing will also be prohibited. So 
it's almost impossible to differentiate your distribution because you own content, and it's almost impossible to differentiate your content because you own distribution. So you end up with two companies that operate side by side, and I suppose they're vertically integrated in concept because they're both owned by the same entity, but there's no real vertical integration in any meaningful business sense here. It's, it's really diversification rather than strategy. What's the, the regulatory hurdle going to be here? This gets kicked down to Washington. Is it a given that the FCC takes it up, and, and uh, how high a hurdle is that going to be? Well, it's a given that the DOJ will take yeah. it up. It's, there's a lot of question right now about whether or not the FCC actually has any jurisdiction here. Um, the FCC's authority to review deals arises from licenses, and there's a single broadcast station in Atlanta that uh, that Time Warner owns that I'm guessing they will rapidly try to divest to see mm. if they can avoid FCC review. There are a handful of satellite uplink licenses, but there's nothing really material in Time Warner uh, that, that revolves around licenses. So there's still some ambiguity about whether the FCC will actually get to get its claws into this deal at all anyway. The DOJ is going to be a tough hurdle. That's a rule of law test. Um, this is a they're they're out saying there's no horizontal issues and that's true, but the vertical issues are really profound and you've seen an already a tremendous amount of political blowback, uh, not only from uh, candidate Trump um, and uh, and uh, but but from across both sides of the aisle and there's going to be a, a tremendous amount of scrutiny. I, I don't think you can give this deal better than 50-50 odds. Craig, I, know, I know Tom wants to get in here, but let me ask you quickly how useful the comparison to the Comcast deal is when, when you're looking at this one. Well, it, useful in some ways. Um, you know, I happen to think that the Comcast deal also was largely diversification and that Comcast really hasn't done all that much to um, to differentiate what it does in either content or distribution by virtue of owning the other. So in some sense, you can think of them both as diversification deals. The difference is Comcast bought NBC at the bottom of the cycle, and they bought it for less than nine times EBITDA. AT&T is buying Time Warner at the top of the cycle, and they're buying it at 12 times EBITDA. So if diversification is all about what price you paid, Comcast paid a much, much more attractive price than AT&T. Craig, there's so much to talk about. You and I could go for three hours this morning. I've got a minute and a half with you. I led my show open this morning with the word desperation. You nailed that in your research report of moments ago to say that AT&T had to do something. All my radar is up on that Moffat Nathanson headline. I, I mean, that never ends pretty, does it? No, you know, it's, it's fun. I mean, they've, they've gotten bigger and bigger. And the problem that you get into in these kinds of situations is, look, they did DirecTV um, a year and a half ago because they had to do something that would help them support the dividend. Um, and so they bought a company that generated a lot of cash flow. But DirecTV is in a precarious position of, of being potentially a declining yeah. asset. And they're already starting to lose subscribers and pay TV. You've already got a shrinking wireless business and a shrinking wireline business. Now you're buying yet another business to try to support the cash flow because DirecTV doesn't look like it can do it for long. But all you get is a bigger and bigger and bigger balance sheet along the way. And eventually, as you say, it tends to end badly. Do you, very quickly here, do you and Michael actually believe the advertising business as we know it will continue 
to be the cash flow that will support this transaction? Or as Scott Galloway just said, the real news is that it will be a no-ad world in the next number of years. Well, I, there are certainly an awful lot of questions about advertising. And, you know, there's a, a fundamental theoretical question that you and I could talk about forever about does targeting actually lead to higher CPM, the, the price of advertising cost per thousand um, people reached? Does, does better targeting actually yield higher CPMs? Theory says it should because it's better targeted, less right. waste. Or does it lead to lower CPMs, which history says happens every time, because as targeting gets better, the opportunity for arbitrage between advertisers right. gets better. Well. And historically, that has won out. So there's lots of questions about okay. the future of the advertising business. Craig, thank you so much from your busy day. Craig Moffat with Moffat Nathanson. We continue. This is Bloomberg. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. We've been, of course, been looking at the transaction of AT&T and Time Warner. They will sign contracts, many, I assume, not only to retain personnel, but actually to get this transaction done, they will do it within a principal and agency basis. Gentleman has just won the Nobel Prize in economics for thinking about contract theory. We spoke with Ben Ostrom of MIT a few days ago, and now joining us, a laureate from Harvard, Oliver Hart. Professor Hart, good morning. Good morning. Congratulations in on thinking of contracts in theory if you were to speak this morning to AT&T executives about this strange principal-agency relationship, what would a Nobel Prize winner's counsel be to the management of AT&T? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a besides lower your cable TV bill. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a that's a difficult question because it's a very complicated transaction, and I wouldn't presume to give them advice without knowing a great deal more about the transaction. You know, it's two very large companies, and uh, there, are, there are many, many, many things going on. I suppose uh, I would probably more ask them questions such as, why, why are you doing it? What are the efficiency gains from this deal? You know, a lot of people are worried about it because they think um, it's going to lead to higher prices, that it's really a, an attempt to increase the monopoly power of, of the, the parties as opposed to being efficiency enhancing. Uh, so I would like to know why, why they think it, it, it will lead to uh, efficiencies, what, what exactly they are. Um, could they be achieved by, in some other way by some sort of joint venture or you know, contract as opposed to a merger? Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I... So it would be more questions than answers from me. 
I'm curious, uh, you know, just, uh, for someone who isn't that familiar with, with contract theory, and it's, it's still a, a fairly new field here, situate it for us and, and, and walk us through the, the wider applications of it. I know you teach in the economics department, but you teach with the business school and you teach uh, in the law school, school as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Just talk about the, the wider implications of the field itself. Well, um, you know, contracts are everywhere, and I think um, they're everywhere in economics because um, almost all deals uh, that parties make have some sort of contract behind them. Uh, the most interesting cases are where it's some sort of long-term um, economic relationship that parties are get, getting themselves into. And then, you know, a contract is a way to regulate that relationship as it goes through as it th- go through goes through time instead of having to talk to each other you know every day about how we should you you know what price i should pay for something you're you're selling me um if if we're talking about a long-term relationship you know it could be a, an electricity company that wants to to uh, burn coal so is uh, contracting with a coal mine you know we might be talking about a 30 to 50 year relationship so they want to set out the terms in advance and i think the way economists think of it is the contract is a way to maximize the value of the relationship so it's uh, not just some sort of legal construct it has this uh, very important economic value that the parties have an interest in arranging their relationship so as to achieve as much as possible from it and that's the contract is a way to do that uh, very quickly here, and in, in, in Professor Hart, um, I, I, I want to make clear that Sandy Grossman is someone that I have immense respect for. His work with Stiglitz, and obviously Grossman and Hart, 1983 as well. What did you and Sanford Grossman do there? What was it that you found nuanced about how we make contracts each and every day? Yes. Actually, it was, it was my pa- – I did write a paper with Sandy Grossman in 1983, but the, the one I – actually got the prize. Yeah, I understand that. It was 86. Yeah. It was 86 paper. The innovation there, I think, uh, was that we realized that when when parties write contracts, and we're talking again, the electricity coal example is quite a good one, a long-term relationship, it's very hard to anticipate all the things that are going to happen, you know, over a 30 to 50-year period. It's, it's absolutely impossible. So any contract will be incomplete. It will ha- have a lot of stuff uh, missing. And then w- what we realized was that a key question then is who gets to decide on the things that are missing? And um, what, we, what we then went on to argue was, well, um, that's something that can be decided in advance. In other words, uh, while you can't decide or uh, put in the contract all the things that can happen, you can decide who's going to decide. Mm-hmm. And one way you can do that is through allocating uh, ownership of assets or more generally um, uh, ha- deciding right. whether two companies should merge or not. That's going to... So in, in the case of... Just to give you an example, yeah. if AT&T buy Time Warner... Then, in the future, when some decision has to be made right. concerning Time Warner, AT&T will be able to make that decision. Okay. We continue with Professor Hart of Harvard, who is an acclaimed teacher and educator and has wandered into a Nobel Prize uh, in <laughs> contract theory. Professor, I interrupted you as only we do on Bloomberg Surveillance <laughs> 
You were yeah, talking. Yeah, my answers are too long. No, no, no. no they're no, they're no very pre- the professorial, yes. and also we want tickets to Harvard Yale football. <laughs> uh, professor, could you please explain, as you were, long term agreements and how it folds into, as an example, a major media acquisition between a telephone company of ancient vintage and Bugs Bunny and Yosemite Sam. How does that work? Well, uh, uh, are we talking about Time Warner and... Uh, yes, we are. Yeah, well, I, as I say, I, I, I would look, have to look at the details more, but my, my point is that the, what, what my work has been about is how um, if you acquire a company, you also acquire residual control rights, which means the ability to make decisions in the company you've acquired that previously somebody else was, was doing. And, and this, these, uh, this transfer of decision rights, this is really what characterizes uh, a merger, um, that the, the, the decision rights have changed once company A buys company B. Company A now has decision rights over what company B is doing that previously company B had. And it's all, it, it matters because the initial contract, any contract they write doesn't, can't specify everything. So the, these residual decision rights matter. Now, that's the theory. And then to say why the, that transfer of uh, decisional control rights is important in a particular context like uh, AT&T and Time Warner, you have to get into the weeds there. Uh, you know, if they want to hire me as a consultant, I'll start thinking about it, but it would take <laughs> a long time. I'd really have to roll up my sleeves. You can't, it's, yeah. I wanted to ask you about performance-based pay. There has been such a, a movement over these last few years uh, to, to tie pay more to executive performance. And I wonder to the degree to which that's a, a no-brainer. In other words, sh- should that be the case all the time when you're going through those calculations? When is it worth it not to tie pay to performance? Well, you are now actually asking me about what my colleague, what my friend and co-winner, Bengt Holmstrom, worked on, actually. It's not really my thing. But, uh, and I'm sure he, if you asked him that question, he would say that pay for performance can be good in, in, for the obvious reason that it can get people to work hard to achieve some goal, but that it, it can also be bad because sometimes you're tying the pay to the, to the wrong goal or, or maybe just one of several mm-hmm. goals and it can have a distortionary impact as people, you know, people may then start focusing on one thing at the expense of a lot of other things. And so you have to be careful. That's why, you know, the devil is in the details. But I think he's the guy really to to ask about that. Fair enough. Uh, I mentioned to somebody this week that I was going to be speaking with you, and, and uh, she, she wanted me to ask you if, if you were a Bob Dylan fan, uh, as a matter of joking, but uh, wondered sort of what you, what you plan to talk about in the lecture that you'll be giving uh, in December. Oh, well, am I a Bob Dylan fan? Um, actually, <laughs> mem- I think members of my family are probably bigger fans than I am. There you go. Um, I have to say, you know, it would be nice if he shows up. I will not be devastated <laughs> if he doesn't. Um, I'm still going to go. I'm going to go and get my prize. Um, go take a guitar. Go practice at Passim's. <laughs> go practice at Passim's up the street from Harvard, you know, for yeah. a couple months, and you'll be fine when you get to Stockholm with your guitar in hand. Professor, we've got one minute left. I'm sorry for that. The most honorable thing within your resume and your biography is you were the chairman of Herding Cats for Harvard Economics for three <laughs> years, 2000 to 2003. How did your contract theory work play out as you had to manage the <laughs> egos of Harvard oh. Economics? 
It was fantastically helpful, actually, interestingly enough, because um, I'm not a natural uh, administrator at all. And so um, I actually found it extremely useful when I was negotiating with people or asking them to do things to know what the you know my my what their rights and obligations were so just uh, sort of thinking about you know when i ask you for example to be on a committee um is part of your contract with harvard that you actually have agreed to be on some <laughs> uh it, it, this sounds like kind of trivial but actually i found it extremely useful or actually yeah. in one case i removed someone from a course uh, that they were teaching, not not one of the, the regular faculty. Excuse me, was this, was this Martin Feldstein? You said you're out, man, cues in at uh, 10. No. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly wasn't him, but I, it was somebody who wasn't performing very well, and I, it was very helpful to know, for me to figure out, you know, I have the right to do that. He doesn't have a right to teach the course. Um, you know, that's not the deal. Yeah. So, um, actually, I, I, I think contractually a lot of the time. <laughs> this is wonderful. Oliver Hart, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, with Harvard University uh, winning a Nobel Prize uh, in economics with Bank Holstrom of MIT as well. That was wonderful. Dave. It was wonderful. Uh, I had to one, spoke with both of them. Yeah, I had three. once in, in one week, two separate deans of economics use language that we could not use on radio <laughs> to discuss their professorial discussions yeah. in economics. It can be sport. And now joining us, Walter Pysak, Richard Greenfield of BTIG. They're on speaking terms, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> Who won the bet? Did either of you gain this deal? Rich Greenfield. Who's richer today, Walter Pysak or Rich Greenfield? I'm just glad that Walt now has to deal with uh, media companies. <laughs> yeah. Tom, you can't imagine the, the battles that we have over things like this, but that we yeah. don't let that bubble out in public. Perfect. Yeah, we Good. won't. Uh, you're on speaking terms. What you guys do so well, and, and congratulations to the both of you quoted wildly through the press on Saturday. Let me start with you, Walter Pisek. You guys do the microeconomics of the blather like no one. I would suggest, Walter Pisek, the microeconomics is Sprint and T-Mobile are cleaning the big boy's clock. Mm. Am I right on that? I mean, T-Mobile reported a phenomenal postpaid uh, net ad number. The subscriber base is growing a lot. Sprint actually had good numbers for the first time in a long time. And meanwhile, there's, there's um, AT&T losing customers, and even Verizon has, has inverted to loss. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's what's going on in the wireless industry right now. I look, uh, Rich Greenfield, at the microeconomics of Time Warner, which is, you know, sell at the top and talking to all the great guests we've had today, a terrific valuation. But what is the dynamics of advertising right now for Time Warner and others like it? Look, everyone's fine right now. Business is actually okay. But you can see where the lines are going. I mean, linear TV ratings, Tom, are literally collapsing. Uh, you know, I think that's the fundamental challenge here is that we're moving away from watching linear television where you get home at 8 o'clock and you leave the TV on for several hours and you absorb yeah. 20 minutes, an hour of commercials. We're moving to an on-demand world where there really are no commercials. Yeah. And I think this is Time Warner recognizing that, like, the future doesn't right. look so bright. 
and they found a buyer who really was right. interested in the content assets, the HBO and the Warner Brothers, and were willing to suck up the bad co, which is the Turner assets. Mm-hmm. And they basically said, you know what, we can absorb that, we'll use it to pay our dividend, but we'll, what we really right. wanted was Warner Brothers and HBO, but we, we had to buy the whole thing. Rich and by the way, that negative outlook is probably not that different as far as the telecom business and what we talked about in wireless. Uh, and buying, so buying this just adds some right. diversity. I mean, one of the things that they've been able to put up good numbers because they've been using some accounting on these phone payment plans that have enabled them to right. make EBITDA and earnings look good. But with that out, you know, it's basically right. about diversification now. Well, to and price- that's really the most important thing today is that this is not a read-through that everybody else is going to get acquired in media land. This was a very unique buyer looking at a very specific asset. Okay. I don't think anybody else is getting bought on this theme. Walter Pysak, you know Richard Greenfield's courage in securities analysis. He proved that with Vonage a million years ago. And now he's the pinata on Disney with his very negative view on Disney. Walter Pysak, who's going to be dumb enough in your world to try to acquire Walt Disney? Is it Mr. <laughs> Cook and Cupertino? <laughs> well, that's that's certainly a name that gets bannered about, um, you know. And, and look, Disney's a major company. I, you know, it's it's hard to say whether um, Apple has interest. Bucus, on, I think, was was quoted. I think it was on CNBC saying no one else has, has actually talked to him. I think his his quote was something like, "I can park my car out in the curb, and if someone actually kicks the tires, does that really count as like checking it?" So I don't. I'm not sure that that Apple. Or Google, just because they're big and everyone always lists them as a potential buyer, I'm not sure we should we should look for them to make a meaningful um, move. I, I think at this point, I mean, I think they've talked about the TV and even the car in the past, but you know, you scrape the surface, you take a look at things, and and you see if you can do something. Just because you have a lot of money doesn't mean you make a major deal. And let's think about Apple for a second. They don't do big deals. Beats was like this shocker for everyone. It was four billion, three three billion dollars. Have they really done any other large acquisitions? No. Rich Greenfield. And, and Rich can talk about Google. Yeah, I was gonna, I'm just going to say there was, there's been so much talk of this sort of north-south agreement, Rich. Uh, who's, who would be left for an Apple or a Google? Well, look, Disney's a $150 billion company. So assuming, you know, even if the stock continues to fall as we think it will, you, you know, if you're buying it, you're still probably buying it for $170 billion. That's even a pretty big deal for the companies that we're talking about. I mean, yes, you've got $500 billion companies, but that's a very major shift of your entire business. For Google to own theme parks and cable networks, really hard to imagine. I certainly don't think Facebook is going there. That's just not the way they look at the world. And so, you know, when you look at the smaller companies, look, Fox is owned by the Murdoch family. They're not for sale. Viacom and CBS are going to merge together, we believe, owned by the Redstone family, not for sale. There really is nobody else. That, that would give you scale of content creation. I mean, when you think about the discoveries and the AMCs and the scripts, like, these are small. The, these wouldn't accomplish. If, if the goal is great content, meaning Warner Brothers and HBO in this transaction, all of those other assets don't get you that really unique, high-quality content creation. You know, uh, Walt, but, just, just quickly here, uh, AT&T, of course, headquartered in Dallas, and, and I wonder when you look at the, the complementarity of these these two companies, how big a factor is that is that geographic thing going to play here? The, the fact that AT and T is based there, uh, you know, how seamlessly integrated can these companies be with that? The case, you know, you know, when Charter bought Time Warner, they're having a lot of those people, particularly in the Wi-Fi area, move out to Denver. But in this case, I think AT and T looks at this as a wholly owned subsidiary. I'm not sure that's something that that they're going to mess with. I think you, you need to keep the talent and the management teams, you know, for these assets where they are. So I don't. I don't think the cultural issues that might exist uh, where you're moving people to Dallas um, really pertain in this particular transaction. 
Wolf when I, is really excited, though, about the next Batman premiere. Though. Yeah. No, but, I mean, come on. You know, we played Yosemite Sam and Bugs Bunny uh, earlier. And, I mean, come on, folks. They're iconic. Rich Greenfield, uh, there's assets on the Time Warner balance sheet. Are they all priced into this $107 a share? I mean, is it priced? Well, I mean, Tom, you're paying a really full price because you're getting this great content that you and from from Warner Brothers, uh, which has Hanna-Barbera at the DC Comics, uh, Harry Potter's franchise. I mean, there's so much great IP within Warner Brothers. But remember, half the company is linear, legacy, basic cable networks. Yeah. TBS, TNT, True TV, you know, see, I mean, there's a lot of stuff yeah. that is challenged and really <clears throat> stuck in the legacy bundle. And so, you look, there's some great assets right. in there. It's why we, went, we were arguing for a long time that the way to maximize value was to split the company into HBO, Warner Brothers, mm. and then Turner on the other side. And Jeff resisted. And you know what? In the end, he proved us wrong because he found somebody who was willing to buy everything. Yeah, who's Walter? Who's the next distributor to buy this? I thought Jen uh, Ransom's yeah, uh, Jan Ransom's note at Jack uh, Draw Research was brilliant on this. There's got to be another guy out there to buy the next media conglomerate. Is it Google? I mean, look, Verizon has said they want to keep things small. I mean, they're 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 buying stuff like AOL that that Time Warner has cast aside, and they're not looking for a big transaction. Um, it's possible that Verizon, as you kind of approach the ultimate retirement of their CEO, Lowell McAdam, may change that strategy. But for now, it doesn't look yeah. like they're going to get involved. Rich, and we've already talked about Apple and Google. Yeah, I mean, buyer. I mean, Rich, very quickly here, the idea of our regulated cell phone cash flows being distributed to buy the legacy of Bugs Bunny and the newness of season whatever it is of Game of Thrones. I mean, that's really what this transaction is, right? I think what everyone forgets is when you line up on a chart, the major distributors or platforms, whether we're talking Google or AT&T or Verizon, versus the entire legacy media industry, all the companies that, you know, whether it's Viacom or Fox or Time Warner, they're all pimples relative to the size of these tech platforms and distribution platforms. It, it, there's just a whole different size and scale, and I think we often lose sight of just how small the media world really is, despite all of our excitement of seeing and enjoying some of the content. Walt, very quickly here, the only company that pays more for lobbyists than Verizon is AT&T. When you handicap the regulatory hurdle here, how high a hurdle is that? I don't know if this is fact, but I think Google probably spends more than All right, AT&T. there you go. <laughs> I, I think Netflix okay. has some dollars uh, in the D.C. world okay. as well. So on the regulatory side of things, I think the key well, thing to, to focus on is whether the FCC can have a formal review of this and use this very important yeah. uh, administrative law judge, um, basically, you know, lever that they can pull. If this is just a DOJ issue, I think AT&T has got a pretty good shot at making their arguments. Tom, you also didn't mention one other stock, which is Netflix. And so when you think about yes. you're looking at distributors buying content creators, but there's also content creators may look to buy Netflix because right. that gets you distribution. So someone like Disney looking at something like Netflix could be really interesting. Right. And I think that's probably why Netflix now, is up today. We want to say content companies and distribution getting right. together may be, may be something we hear more about, but from different directions. We have to go, but congratulations to both of you on your quotes through all media over the weekend. Walter Pisek, Richard Greenfield, BTIG, uh, with a, just a, like Moffat Nathanson, uh, David Gurrow, just a terrific synthesis of real-world experience. Both of them have enjoyed losing money, which is the only way to gain uh, wisdom. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.